Well, take your Bible that you're holding or that might be under one of those seats where you are. The Bibles are, I think, under every third seat if you didn't bring it. And I draw your attention back to the book of Ephesians. And we're coming into chapter 2 this morning. uh, That's subtitled probably by the publisher, By Grace Through Faith. And it is a wonderful text that I think will certainly set the pace for us to be able to partake of the Lord's table today. But Ephesians chapter 2, and let me read this for you in verses 1 through 10, and then we'll pay particular attention to verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and, that is, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as of the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a great, great text. You know, throughout history, uh, the history of the Christian faith, there are many believers over the years that have been brought to faith by the very message of Ephesians. Not only the preached word, but just reading this text has brought people to faith. One such man was a man back in church history by the name of John Mackay. He was the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary. And here's what he says to this book. He said, quote, to this book I owe my life, he wrote, And he went on to explain that as a boy of 14, he experienced uh, this, coming to faith in Christ, through reading the book of Ephesians. He said in his own testimony, quote, it was a boyish rapture in the Highland Hills, you lived in Scotland, and I made a passionate protestation to Jesus Christ among the rocks in the starlight. I don't, I don't know if 14-year-old boys speak of that, but we understand that it was just in the reading of this book, Under the Stars and those Scotland Hills, that he came to Christ. He said this, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook. He said a new experience, new attitudes to other people. He said, I loved God, and Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I love that. He said, I had been quickened, it's the thought in Ephesians 2, 5, of made alive. He said, I was really alive, end of quote. 14 years of age, just reading this book. And really, as we turn to chapter 2, Paul is going to describe what it means to be quickened. He's going to be describing what it means to be made alive. He's going to describe for these Ephesian believers, but by the Spirit of God, he's going to describe for you what happened in salvation. Now, let me see if I could just back up just for a few moments to the context. Context. Chapter 1, as you remember, unfolds the master plan of salvation all the way into eternity past. That work includes, in 3 through 14, the Father, it includes the Son, and it includes the Holy Spirit. 
Then in chapter 1, in verses 15 through 23, he begins to pray that we would understand and comprehend our great position in Christ. Then he begins to pray, look at 119, that we would understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He illustrates the greatness of that power, and the reason I'm pointing that out to you is though you have a chapter heading that's supplied to you and to me by the publisher, of course, when he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus that we believe became a circular letter that not only came to this church, but really to all those churches in Asia Minor, he wrote a letter. He wasn't writing with chapters and verses. It's been supplied to you so that we can follow it. Obviously, this was a letter. But when you get to chapter 2, 1, when he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he's very much making a linking to chapter 1, verse 19. And from 1, 19 down to the end, he's giving an illustration of the greatness of the power of God. He's praying that you and I would understand something of the immeasurable greatness of his power. You say, how powerful is God, look at 120, when it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. To illustrate the power of God, he turns to the most glorious of all events, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we said there, there were four markers. He raised him from the dead. He exalted Christ to his right hand. He subjected all things to Christ, thirdly, and he appointed Christ as head of the church. So as we turn from chapter 1, we're coming into chapter 2, and he's presenting to these believers how, in time, and, and to you, he exerted this power that we're praying about for your benefit, and the thought here is that God is so powerful that he made you alive. And obviously that happened through the resurrection to Jesus Christ. What was done for Christ will be made known to the believer. Paul says that the amazing power that raised Christ from the dead is now applied to the church to those who are in Christ. In fact, glance down at 2.6, where not only did he raise Christ in 1.20, but in 2.6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him, it says, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All of this happens according to our union with Christ. So listen, here's what 2, 1 through 10 is all about if you're taking notes. It's a spiritual biography of your salvation, how we were placed, if you will, the dead were made alive and placed in the body, the church. And so he moves, if you will, from eternity past into time present. And the thought here is that he made us alive. And so for those of you who are grammarians out there, God is the subject. And what's interesting here is there is a main verb. And... Uh, Maybe I should have asked you at the beginning, can you find that? It, it, it might help you. It certainly helps me. The main verb is not in 2-1. It's not in 2-2. It's not in 2-3. It's not even in 2-4. The main thought of this paragraph in 2-1 through 10 is located in verse 5. Look at it there. That even when we were dead in our trespasses, here it says in the ESV, he made us alive together with Christ. To make us alive is the lead thought, if you will. It is the lead verb. And what he's going to describe here is how God saves sinners. Now, here's what I want to look at it with, with you. In 2, 1 through 3, he's going to talk about our past condition. It's right there. What we were before Christ. Then in chapter 2, 4 through 7, he's going to talk about our present transformation 
what we are in Christ. In other words, what happened to us. Then in chapter 2, 7 through 10, he's going to talk about our future summation and even what we become in Christ. So what we once were, what we are now, and what we will become in Christ. But for our time this morning, as we go to the Lord's table in just a bit, we'll look at the spiritual biography of our past condition, okay? Now listen, you're going to hear some things today in the sinfulness of man that, are, that is just, I don't know if, it, uh, if it's harsh, it's a stunning statement that if I gave this message at Fresno State, they would laugh me off the campus. If you gave this type of message at any university across America filled with Marxist socialists, they would just laugh me out of the place. But here is a biblical uh, focus on who man really is, who you really were before Christ. And before he makes you alive in 2.5, what's interesting, just to share this with you, some translations supply verse 5, he made us alive together with Christ at verse 1. In other words, it says in 2.1, they insert it there in italics, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, comma, and he made you alive. In other words, they're, they're, they're looking at the main thought and trying to move it in verse 1 because he's, he's moving to verse 5. But the thought here is, I'm not going to try to send you out like with heavy shoulders. That's not the point. The, the point would be that he made you alive. And the point is, you have to remember what you were saved out of. And so before we can understand, at least in this text, uh, that we're spiritually alive, you must understand that you were spiritually dead. And before you can grasp the greatness of your salvation, you must comprehend the grotesqueness of your sin. And here's probably what the struggle is of most churches. They don't even talk about sin. They don't even address sin. And what Paul's saying is, how do you give thanks to God in chapter 1 if you never understood, uh, have understood what he has saved you out of? So Paul's going to help us. Now, what he does in this past condition is make three bold declarations, three epic statements about our sinful past that reveals a great truth of God's power in your salvation. So the theme here, as I've titled it, our lost human condition or our human condition. You could put on the front of that the power of God, our human condition. But the bold declarations are this. You were dead, you were depraved, and you were doomed. Okay? Dead, depraved, and doomed. Let's pick that up on our lost condition. You were dead. You know the text. Look at 2.1. He says there, and you. He's linking it back into chapter 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Literally, you being dead. Paul is saying here that prior to your conversion, you were spiritually dead to the things of God. Obviously, in its final form, it leads to physical death. But here you're dead spiritually. It describes, does this death, an alienation, a separation from God. I mean, the truth is, is you were born dead, and I was born dead. In fact, spiritual death is the condition of everyone in this world, every individual, outside of a relationship with Christ. And that is, of course, why Jesus said in John 3, you must be, what, born again. You say, but pastor, I see people who are alive walking about. How are we dead in our trespasses and sins? Let me show you. Just look over a couple chapters in chapter 4 of Ephesians in verse 18. Here's how we were dead. They are speaking of the Gentiles and us prior to Christ. In fact, if you go to 417, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk 
as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, and here's the thought, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. There's that phrase, alienated from the life of God. In other words, the inner man is spiritually dead. In other words, before you came to Christ, you could not respond to the things of God. You were, if you will, walking corpses. You were, in this text, living death. You were a spiritual zombie to the things of Christ. Now certainly we know in our doctrine of man that Romans, you could finish the sentence with me in 6.23, that the wages of sin are what? Death. And the truth is, you not only sin by choice, but you sin by nature because David said you were conceived in sin. But the wages of that sin is death. In fact, Paul went on to say in Romans 6.16, to be a slave of sin leads to death. So when he begins to talk about our past condition, he said you were dead. In fact, I think it's interesting in a positive manner that in the Gospels, in the book of John as we studied, when Jesus began to talk about new life, he said in 524 that we've passed out of death into life. In other words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But before we come to that life, we are spiritually dead. He said, what does that mean, spiritually dead? I think John Stott will help us here. He said, quote, for in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body, so contrary to the world, but he said, which is neither the body nor the mind, nor the personality, but the soul, Stott said, they have no life. And he said, you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. They are deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God. No sensitive awareness of His personal reality. No leaping of their spirit towards Him in the cry, Abba, Father. No longing for fellowship. They're as unresponsive to Him as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death. And those who live in it are dead even while they are living. End of quote. In other words, they're dead men walking. I remember vividly, even as I stand here, and I've shared this with you once before. But as a, as a, as a young boy, I grew up in Canoga Park and just grew up in a little street called Remy. And that's where I grew up, on the west end of the San Fernando Valley, and knew all of our neighbors. And I still remember, I must have been seven or eight, down our little tiny street came a fire truck, down came an ambulance, down came a paramedic truck. It seemed like four or five cars were just hauling into Remy Avenue. And I thought, this is, this is crazy. What, what is this? What happened? And what was amazing is they passed my house, passed one other house, and stopped on the corner. And so I was just curious. I kind of bolted out my door. And by the time these trucks and fire trucks and paramedics and were pulling and running into this house, a crowd had gathered. But as a young boy, you're not always so sensitive as to what goes on and so I, I suppose I knew this family, it was an older couple, and I just ran through everybody outside. I just ran through the front door, and in that room were 15 people, 10 medical workers, and the, the man who lived there was on the, 
the floor, unresponsive. And I will never forget it in my life because his wife, you know, was on her knees. Both, they must have been in their 70s or 80s. And she was hitting him in the chest to wake up and come out of this. And I just, it was startling. It was shocking for me. I wasn't even a teenager. And I just kind of sat there wide eye as she wept and just began to like hit his chest and call his name and call him out. And obviously he was unresponsive. And he was unresponsive because he was dead. And finally, the, the worker got those, uh, I don't know, the, the paddles out of the box and shocked them. And I thought that only happened in the TV shows, but it was true. They, they, they hit the, 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 you know, the paddles on them and shocked them, but there was no line on the little monitor that they had established. And the reason was, is because he was dead. He's unresponsive. He didn't sit up and go, oh, I'm sorry, dear. There's, there's nothing going on. There's no EKG there. There's no response because he is a dead man. And I don't know, sometimes as we come to the Lord's table, when you see that, that you're dead in your trespasses and sins, we just, we read it and we become so familiar to it. You're dead. You're a corpse. You can't respond apart from God. You, spiritually speaking, have flatlined. And I've been in the hospital at code red or code blue and have entered into rooms where it's just straight because the response is gone. Listen, what, what Paul's saying here is in the spiritual realm, you cannot respond to the things of God. You couldn't at that moment pull yourself up by the bootstraps if that's you. Apart from God, you were dead. You say, what causes this death? What causes this separation? What causes this alienation? Look back at the text in 2.1. It's right there. He said, you're dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Now, there's two different words that he uses there for sin but I do think it's interesting. I don't think there's such a focus on the difference of them. But they are plural. And the, the ideal of a trespass here is to stumble, is, is what it means. It's to deviate from the path. In other words, you've tripped over something. You've deviated from the path, is the thought. You have crossed, this is what the word means, uh, a forbidden boundary, if you will. In other words, what Paul is saying is you are dead in your trespasses. Maybe we could use that euphemism. You are dead in your tracks. And I think what's interesting here is that Paul is not emphasizing Romans 5.12 that as a result of Adam's sin, because he sinned, we sinned, and because he was, you know, he, he was alienated, we're all alienated in Adam, there's truth to that, but here the focus is you're dead. You're spiritually dead because you died in your trespasses. And then he mentions the word sin there, as you could well see. He mentions sin and just the Greek word harmartiology, and it just means to miss the mark. It means to fall short of the standard. You know that. It was a hunter's term. It was used to describe a bullseye. And when you were shooting your bow, if you will, and you missed the bullseye, you missed the mark. And then the word developed into this concept of sin, which some cultures have no concept of sin. One of the cultures that I've been to that doesn't even have a definition for sin is Japan. You're walking around, not in a third world country, but a country that is technologically advanced and they have no concept for sin. But biblically, sin, trespass, as you've crossed over the, the boundary, if you will, here your sins, you have missed the mark, you have failed to hit God's standard, and certainly there are very various degrees of sin. There's murder, 
There's robbery, there's rape, yes, but that would include lying, anger, dissensions, drunkenness, jealousy, divisions. But what Paul is saying here is you're spiritually dead because every man misses the mark. And the big question is, what's the mark? What's the bullseye? And the bullseye, biblically, you know this, is perfection. It's not being a good person. There is a bullseye. It's you have to live perfect to get into his presence. And none of us live perfect. And you know this because Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and what? Fallen short of the glory of God. No man, no woman, no of the seven billion people on the face of the earth has reached that status. In fact, you're dead, spiritually dead because of your sins, because of your trespasses. You have fallen short, the Bible says, of the glory of God. And so thus you're spiritually dead. And the problem, obviously, with modern man, listen close, is not the culture It is not politics. It is not economics. It is not education, but a sin against the Creator. If you want a a commentary on our world, here it is. Man is not right with God, so he cannot be right with one another. Listen, I think we live in some interesting days, but I'm going to say to you don't be so surprised. And listen, can I say this to you? Our past condition. This hit me. It's not so much what we do wrong, but, what, but rather what we fail to do. Our past condition is a failure to glorify God, is a failure to honor God, is a failure in Romans 1.21 to give thanks to God. In other words, you don't even have to look at what people have done, just look at what people don't do. How many people are glorifying God today? How many people who name Christ are in the means of grace? How many people who claim that are giving thanks? No, I would submit to you we fail to honor him and glorify him daily. And that's why we need Christ. I think you know the illustration. Let let me give you an example. I had some friends who went to Catalina the other day. And they, I think, drove down to Long Beach and flew into uh, Catalina. But what if we just got massive buses and took all of our people in our church, adults as well as children, students, and we bust them all down to Long Beach and we, we kind of lined them all up on the shore of Long Beach, just all the hundreds of people that are coming. And we said, here's what we want you to do. We want you to make a vast jump to Catalina. And if you can jump to Catalina... And uh, don't get in the water, just jump. We want you to hurdle the whole body of water. I think it's 20-some miles. And, and if you do that, you'll be able to get to heaven. I think we all understand there may be some people who can't jump at all. There may be some others who can jump three feet. There may be some great athletes in this church who can jump further than that. Some of you might even attempt a triple jump to get over from Long Beach all the way to Catalina. But the point being is that you're going to fall short. So all have fallen short of the glory of God. No attempt of our own righteousness is ever going to be able to bridge that chasm of water because it's physically impossible for a human being to make that jump. And I would say to you, it's also impossible for you who are sinners in some way to try to please God and make that jump. Let me give you maybe just one more illustration. Just, I don't know, a couple months back, I went to a a bow hunt and... uh, I watched, it was a bow hunt contest, okay? I, I wasn't bow hunting, although that looks fun. I still feel like I have Los Angeles in me. Um, but I went to a bow hunt, and I was amazed, because around this property, I think, were 30 stations of animals, of every kind of animal, not real animals, but just rubber animals, and it was a bow contest. 
And I thought, this is interesting. So they would climb trees and shoot at the animal 40 yards away. And then they would go through a hill. And then they would shoot at one, you know, 20 yards away. And then they would come to another one stationed over by maybe part of the King's River. And they would have to go 80 yards away. And what was amazing is they scored all of these. You get plus three for a heart shot. In other words, it's a contest. I don't know, there's probably 15 guys there. You get plus three for a heart shot. You get plus one for a kill shot. You might not have got the heart, but if you hit the, the artery, if you hit the liver, if you hit the, the lung, you'd still get plus one. And then if you hit from, just say 60 yards away, the body of the animal, just the body. I'm like, man, that, that guy's awesome if he can just hit the body. I thought that's how you score anybody who sticks, you know, their, their arrow into a rubber body. But if you just hit the body, it's minus one. And then if you just miss the body altogether, it was minus three. And I was kind of stunned. There were good shooters there. I won't tell you who won, but man, I thought Cody Lehman was really good though. And you understand, I mean, minus three, if you just shoot and you miss the whole thing, listen, it reminds me of man trying to make his righteous attempt to please God. The standard of God is the bullseye. The standard of God is perfection. And all have fallen short of that. There may be some of you even here that are listening this morning and you've never understood this. And if you don't understand the greatness of your sin and the grotesqueness of your sin and my sin, you'll never understand the grandeur of the glory of God. Paul is praying that you'd understand something of his power. And he's praying about the power that raised you was the power that raised you from death to life because here you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. This is why a good person, whatever that means... A kind person is as in great need as the murderer on death row. He is as in great of need, the good person, as a drunken alcoholic. He is in great of need as a heartless terrorist. You say, oh, yeah, Scott, I don't know about a heartless terrorist. No. All you have to do is shoot your bow one time and miss the mark and you're you're separated and alienated from God. Now, obviously, not all men are as evil as they could be, but all fail to measure up to God's standard, which is perfection. So here, Paul is not describing, beloved, a de degraded segment of society. No, this is a biblical diagnosis of fallen man everywhere. In fact, I want you to note something doesn't quite bring this out in the ESV, but here's what it says in 2.1, and you were dead, it should say, in your trespasses and sins. In other words, they belong to you. God is personally holding you directly responsible for your sins. But he says in light of your past condition, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. But that's not all. Look at verse 2. He says, in which you once walked. And he begins to explain how sin manifested itself in daily life. So I take you from you were dead to, secondly, you were depraved. He speaks there of once walking or that you once, past tense, walked. In other words, even though you're spiritually dead in 2-1, in 2-2, you're walking. Now, it's interesting. Sometimes Paul will use this word to speak of the Christian life, that we walk with the Lord, that we walk according to love. But here he's describing our life before Christ. He's describing a way of life. He's talking about freely moving, if you will, in the way you lived, in the midst of your trespasses and sins in which you once walked even though you're dead spiritually in verse 1 you're now seen walking dead spiritually but alive and moving about in sin so I just say depraved you say how so well he lists sub points here three overwhelming bondages that held you in your vice grip before your salvation they are namely the world the flesh and the devil now, he, looks, he says here 
Look again at the text. He says, in which you once walked, he says, following the course of this world. He said, number one, here's why you're dead in your trespasses and sins, because you're in bondage to the world. You were, is what he's saying. Following the course of this world. He said, what does that mean? Conforming to the course of this world. And when he speaks of world there, it's the Greek word cosmos. He's not talking about the physical world, and we talked about that in 1 John. He's talking about the world of sin represented by an evil course that man pursues. The world here describes the behaviors, the attitudes, the oppositions to the very ways of God. It describes the fashions, it describes the politics, it describes the the educational theory. Best seen world, I would think, in humanism, where man is sovereign, man is king, man is Lord. He doesn't have any conscious thought of glorifying God. He's about as humanistic as he can be, and I'm the king of my own castle, and we'll make our own decision. That's also seen in materialism. The consumer is God, and he or she seeks to amass all they can to support their lifestyle, and obviously the world is seen in hedonism, the pleasure. They make pleasure their God, and he says, so you're depraved, and you're in bondage to the world, and in other words, you drifted along the stream of the world's ideas of living. In other words, prior to Christ, remember when Paul says in Romans 12 too, be not conformed to this, what, world. That's for a believer. But before when you were spiritually dead, your whole life conformed to this world. That's what he's saying. You are actually, he says, in bondage to it. But he says, not only were you in bondage to the world, but secondly, you were in bondage to the devil. Look at it in verse 2. He said, following the prince of the power of the air. In bondage to the ruler of that system, which is Satan. And here he's called ruler. He is first, is what the word means. He's the beginning one. He's the chief. He's the ruler here in the text. He's the prince. He said, this is why you were dead. You were not only in a vice grip, if you will, to the world and its theory, but you were in bondage, if you will, to the devil. Now, I'm not saying that everyone is demon-possessed, but you would be so off base if you don't think he's operating in our world today. He is operating. You say, well, how could people do the things they do? How could people lie the way they lie? How could people just make untruths? Listen, it's not as simple as you seem, as you think. They're not only in bondage to the world, they're in bondage to the prince of this world. John 12, 31 is Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says he's the God of this age. The God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is Satan. He is the rebellious leader of a host of demons who rules over the world system. Mark 3.22 calls him the ruler of the demons. So Paul is describing our deadness. Then he's describing our depravity, bondage to the world and bondage to the devil. Look what it says in the text there in 2.2, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, Satan is the ruler or the prince of the air. He rules, if you will, powerful demons who occupy the air. It is the... I just take it as the sphere around the earth. Sometimes in biblical language, you have the first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. He is just saying that Satan is in control of the air. In fact, look over at 612. You know this, and we'll save much of this for later. But in 612, he says there, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. This is demonic. Against the cosmic powers over, he calls it this, this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says you're in bondage to not only the world, but to the devil. Look how he describes it here. The spirit, the age is the thought, two, two, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's quite a statement there. 
we're not only spiritually dead, but here it says before Christ were sons of disobedience. You know, it's interesting. It says the spirit, the, the spirit of the age, the, even the Satan demonic control is at work. And the word work was used earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. It is a supernatural power over the lives of men, over the lives of women who rebel against God, who disregard his commands. So he's at work in the sons of disobedience. That could be you this morning if you're here and you just thought, I'm going to come to church and hear a message. Well, let me just tell you. If you're here without Christ, and if you haven't bowed your knee to Christ, then you're called a son of disobedience. In fact, I think there's a TV show called The Sons of Anarchy. Well, very well here, the world without Christ is the sons of disobedience. So you're depraved in the world in bondage to the devil. Thirdly, would you note, you're in bondage not only to the world, the devil, but the flesh. In fact, it's frightening. And, and again, he's past tense here. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived, he says, in the passions of our flesh. He said, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Frightening. In other words, we all too once lived. Not just the you in 2.1, probably Paul referring to the Gentiles. He includes himself and the Jews now here when he says, and we all too lived in the flesh. And I think, you know, when you go back to Romans 3.23, the Bible says that all have what? Sinned. That would be Jew and Gentile. Paul would even say in Romans 3.9, what then? Are we better than they? Paul said of the Jews, not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Romans 3.19, it says there as he issues the, the depravity of man, he gets to 3.19, he says that all the world may be held accountable to God. Now here, he says of the flesh, we were carrying out, look at the text, he says the desires of the body. What, what is that? It's the desire is the Greek word epithumia, and it just talking about a strong human craving. And usually when you see that word epithemia, usually it's in a negative context as it is here. It's the desires of the sinful body, desires that are out of control in passionate lust. He says that before Christ, you just did whatever you wanted with your body, if you will. You, you, you gave in, you carried out the desires of the body. Now, let me just make a comment here. You're not going to hear this at a university. You're going to hear that man is good, and on the peripheral, there's evil people. The Bible says just the opposite. At the core of your being and my being, man is not only dead, he's depraved before Christ. He's carrying out with no conscious thought of God the desires of the body. Look at the society in which we live. But he says not only of the body, look at the text again. He says carrying out the desires of the mind. In other words, your body is not only out of control, but you're also in intellectual bondage. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians 4.18, you were formally alienated, formally, and hostile in mind. Let me explain our world to you biblically. No conscious thought that they're spiritually dead. No conscious thought that they're depraved. No thought that they're in bondage to the world, to the devil, and to the flesh, if you will. They're in bondage to the desires of their mind. They're in bondage, if you will, to intellectual pride. There is an absolute wholesale rejection of the truth. And I would say to you, beloved, that man is not evolving. Man is devolving. And when you begin to understand this, you won't put all your hope in our system. Calvin, the great commentator and man of God, said that man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. 
So not only do you carry out the desires of the body, but also the desires of the mind. If you want to read this afternoon where it discusses the depravity of man, it says they failed to honor God in 121. They failed to doxa him. They failed to uh, either honor or glorify him. They failed to give thanks. And then in Romans 1, it says they were given over, 124, to every kind of lustful impurity. Verse 26 of Romans, they were given over to a degrading passion. It says in Romans 28, 128, they were given over to a depraved mind. You are looking at the fallout of a fallen world. And the only hope, the only remedy is Christ. And these passions of the flesh and the body are not only sexual appetites, but anger, envy, rage, dissensions, selfish ambition as well. Listen, until King Jesus comes back, we're going to have a problem, aren't we? And, 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 and this is what Paul is painting here. He's not trying to put a heavy load on you, but he does paint a horrific picture of our past condition where the world and the devil control him externally and the flesh eats him internally. And so he says, you're dead, you're depraved. And thirdly and finally, you'll note in verse 3, he said, you were doomed. He said, watch the language there, 2-3. You were by nature children, he says there, of wrath. Interesting. Let me just put it this way. You're dead in your sins by choice, verse 1, sins and trespasses. And now in verse 3, you're doomed, if you will, not only by your choice, you're doomed, you can read the language, by your nature, by your birth. David said in Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You don't even have to become a sinner. You're conceived in sin. You are, well, look at it again, by nature, children of wrath. You're doomed. You're on a one-way ticket to hell. And you say, well, what is, what is God's wrath? I could say more in a couple weeks. Is the divine reaction to only one uh, situation, and that situation is called sin. And so he says, all are guilty sinners. Look at the last phrase. He says, they're like the rest of mankind, every Jew, every Gentile. So here's, the, here's what you need to take home today. You say, how did I go from dead how did I go from depraved? How did I go from doomed to being born again? You might even ask the question, how can man change? Now, if I say how can man change, it's not really a question. Because you're dead. You're dead. I don't know if we quite get that. You're dead. What do you mean, Pastor? You can't respond. There's nothing in you to respond. You have no life of God in you. You are spiritually dead, then you're walking dead, but you can't respond to God. There's no spark. But praise God that what you can't do, look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the main section, he made us alive together with Christ. Amen? You say, well, why would he do that? It's a good question. Look at the end of verse 5. By grace, you have been what? Saved. He breathed spiritual life into you is the thought. You could not respond. I could not respond. And God Almighty reaches down through the power of His Word and breathes spiritual life into you. The bones that are dead begin to become alive. But that's a work of God in your life. Listen, all I know is you should go home today thanking God for the power that not only raised His Son, but the power that raised you from the dead. You don't need to find the latest technology. You don't need to find the latest, greatest Tesla car, you don't need to find where real power lies, real power lies in this room. 
He made dead hearts beat. It is a work of God. And you say, well, why is it such a work of God? Because it's His grace. In fact, you know 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that this is not your own, what? Doing. It is a gift of God. Listen, all I know is this, beloved. You were spiritually dead, but God made you alive. You were spiritually following the course of this world, but now he's put you into heavenly places. You were spiritually in bondage to the devil, but God placed you in Christ. You were once sons of disobedience, but God made you his workmanship. You were once a child of wrath by nature, but now you know his love. You were once filled with lust in body and in mind, but God now has extended his mercy to you. So beloved, praise God. It's not to send you out with a heavy heart. It's to remind you as we come to the Lord's table what he's done for you. You who were once dead, is the thought, have been made alive. And the power of God that took Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that raised you. And there is, and I'll say it exclusively to you, only one hope, one remedy, one solution to man's lost condition, and it's this, God made you alive. Who do you need to pray for this holiday season? I just remind you that you are powerless to even affect the salvation of another soul. Certainly we're to pray, but doesn't this make us and lead us to prayer where my heart's prayer, Paul said in Romans, is for my kinsman's salvation. God, who is rich in mercy, acted decisively on behalf of those who were by nature objects of wrath. He has made you alive in Christ. He has raised you up. He has seated you with him in the heavenly places. No wonder John Mackay said at 14, I gave a, I, he gave me a new heart, a new outlook, new relationships. Jesus Christ became the center of my life. Praise God for his power wrought in you.